0: So I want you to all just imagine, imagine that you are standing in front of a chapel. Now it's not even really, to call it a chapel, probably isn't really very accurate. It's really a tent. For a floor it has planks put on top of the dirt, wooden planks. It's got a makeshift door with kind of a wooden steeple on it that's been constructed. Now just imagine you've been asked to to lead, to kind of preach, but to lead like a Bible study in this chapel. And you're in Kyrgyzstan, and the location that you're at, it's a little military installation that's designed to support people going into and out of Afghanistan. And as you stand up and you get ready to lead this little Bible study, this little, you're supposed to sort of preach, there's not a Protestant chaplain available, so it's your turn. And it's just supposed to be four or five of your friends, four or five people you know. And you're getting ready to get started. You're getting ready to open up the Scripture. And there's a shuffling in the back of the room, and into the tent comes about 20 Marines. And what you realize as they come in and they start filling in the seats is these are Marines that have just left Afghanistan. They've been on the ground in this little installation called Manas in Kyrgyzstan for about an hour. They've just left combat. They've just gotten there. And here they are coming in to this chapel. Their uniforms are dirty. They've been fighting A war. They've lost friends. They've taken lives. And here they are, exhausted, uniform, still dirty, and they come into this chapel. They come into this setting. And standing in in, in front of them is someone, like like most of us here, no formal seminary training, no, no degree, never been under fire in combat. And just imagine the the feeling of futility. Imagine the feeling of, of inadequacy. What could you possibly say? What could you possibly do in front of people like this? Men and women who have just seen the very worst that this life on earth has to offer in combat. And they're coming in to this chapel. As we think of the scripture that we're doing this morning, we're going to come back to that chapel and talk about that. But just consider the circumstances that life puts us in and the futility that we often face in this world, the inadequacy of this feeling that we have. Because where we start in this passage of scripture in in Romans 8, as we read it, is with this idea of futility. There's this idea of futility. But in God's love and God's grace, there's this future glory that we're going to get to and we'll talk about. And as we go through the scripture, we're going to see that. That even in the suffering, even in the pain, there's this future glory. So what I'd like to do now is turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 27. So in Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, it says... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, as we spend a few moments together in worship and reading your scripture, I just ask that you open our hearts and minds that we look past this sinful world that we're a part of and in this Christmas season, we begin to focus on the future hope and the future glory of your second coming. And I just ask that with open hearts and minds, we prepare ourselves for the blessings of your scripture. Amen. So a little bit of context for this passage. As we think about this passage, I think it's appropriate to consider the audience a little bit. Paul's writing to a church in Romans. And I think today we we kind of forget a little bit about some of the context of that church, or at least I did as I started thinking about this, we have to remember that's a really new, young church in Romans. And it's a small church. It pr- could potentially be smaller than our own church here, less members. We don't have attendance records or, or, uh, or tithe records or anything like that. But it's safe to assume this is not a very big church. And think of the thir- circumstances therein. Yes, the the Messiah came. Yes, they've had the day of Pentecost. Yes, they have the ministry of the Spirit. But they're being persecuted. And they are a tiny remnant of people worshiping together, trying to figure this out in what is a young church. And they could reasonably have felt that the world was against them. They could have felt futility in, in all of this. And so... I think it's important that we keep that in mind and as we think about futility for a few moments, I don't think it's hard for us to look at our own lives but also to look at the fallen world around us and just see futility, right? And what do we mean when we say futility? We mean something is a desire. Something is designed to do something but it just cannot achieve its desired purpose, that futility. And if you want an example of that and you want an example of man's futility in a sinful and fallen world, one that hits home for me is this. Consider our justice system, right? Our justice system is designed with the hope that we could create something that would be fair, that would be based on truth and equality, right? Our justice system, as... Humankind has these aspirations, and as a country, we say, let's create a justice system based on the best principles that we can come up with. Let's create a system where we have judges that are supposed to be impartial, and where we have juries, and we we seek the truth, we do everything we can to find justice using man's wisdom. But but what's the problem? The problem is we know, despite our best efforts, it can be an imperfect system. Since DNA evidence has been a part of our criminal justice process, and that's only a few decades that that's been a part of it. Over a thousand people have been exonerated by DNA evidence. Over a thousand people who were wrongfully con- convicted and combined spent over 3,000 years in prison are actually innocent, wrongfully convicted, and DNA evidence told us that. And that's The futility of a system based on man's wisdom in an imperfect and fallen world. So even in that, we say, wow, we have the best intentions in that. And and we can't get there. And we, we can't get there. So that's this futility that we're talking about. And as we look at this passage, we see the discussion of the futility of creation. And this goes back to Genesis chapter 3. And the worship team, they read, they read some of these verses, and we're going to go to them again. So if we go to Genesis 3, and we're just going to look at verses 17 through 19. But what does the scripture say? It says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see this futility. We understand this futility. We understand the feelings of inadequacy that we have. But then if we go back Romans 8, and we look at verse 22. There's a hint in this verse, even when it's talking about groanings and sufferings, there's a hint of the future glory. So look at this verse. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now think about that. That's an interesting phrase, right? The pains of childbirth. What what's interesting about that is that, that that theme, that discussion of childbirth, and the reason I think Paul's probably using it here goes back to Jewish literature, Jewish apocalyptic literature and messianic literature. They talked about the woes of the Messiah, and they, they would use the phrase the, the pangs, the childbirth pangs of the messianic age. And what they were they talking about? In, in Jewish history, they were talking about the suffering that was going to come Before the coming of the Messiah. And that's where this idea of childbirth comes in. And and in this, this John Piper uses an illustration where he talks about if if you're in a hospital and you hear someone crying out in pain, you hear them groaning and struggling with something, it it makes a difference to know if you're in the maternity ward. Right? And the idea is that childbirth is is pain. It's, It's part of the curse. It's so painful. But there's, there's hope, there's a coming new life, there's a blessing coming into this world through that pain and suffering. And, and that's, that's the beginnings of this idea that, that Paul has as he's talking about this. And you see this idea, even in verse 19, if you go back to verse 19, and throughout this passage, you see this use of the term eager. And Paul's talking about in verse 19, this eager longing. In, in the original language, what that eagerness is portraying is the idea of, of lifting your head up and looking in the direction of knowing something is coming and, and, and almost standing up on your tiptoes. That's the kind of eagerness, right? That's the kind of eagerness. And that's what this is hinting towards. This is, we're, we're suffering. There's futility. We're in this imperfect and falling world, but there's a future glory coming. And the groaning and the pains, it's, it's like childbirth because of the hope of what we have that is to come, And so that's the futility. But here's what's really, I think, just so amazing about what Paul is writing here. Because he moves from that and he begins to talk about the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits of the Spirit. Now, now, now think about this, this concept, right? The idea of first fruits. This portrays the idea of a, a farmer, someone going out into an orchard every day taking care of their crops, taking care of their fields. And then suddenly, one morning when they go out there, they see that first bud coming up out of the ground. They, first, they see that first hint, that first fruit on the tree. And that gives them that hope, that promise of the harvest that's to come, right? That's, that's the language that's being used here. That's the idea of the first fruits. And what's so amazing about this passage is, is it starts out by talking about the futility of creation, the futility of man without God, and then it moves forward and says, yes, creation is groaning because it's not fulfilling its intended purpose. But then it's starting to speak to the Christians and say, but Christians, you have the first fruits of the Spirit. You have the first fruits of the Spirit in your lives today as the Holy Spirit does its work. What you have, as is talked about in Galatians 5, Galatians 5, 22 through 24, what do we know? This is where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, So believers we have this this work of the Spirit. We have the beginnings of the first fruit. We can see as we rely on God and God's grace and he does a redeeming work in our lives, we begin to see love and joy and peace, the fruits of the Spirit, the the fruits of God working in our lives. But even more than that, in our futile state, in our fallen state, in our imperfect state, what's so amazing about this passage is it goes on to talk about what the Holy Spirit does for us as it convicts us and work in our lives. And there's a groaning in this first, right? There's a groaning in this first. And the groaning is Christians dealing with our own sinfulness, fighting against sin, trying to conquer sin in this fallen world. And we, we get that in these verses as we think about these verses. In, Ver, in Romans eight twenty three, what does it say? As we look at verse 23, it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So we even we as Christians, we have our own groaning as we seek to do God's will, as we seek that, as we seek to put sin and to death in our lives. We deal with that. We deal with that struggle. Paul talks about it. Earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter 7, verses 25, he, he just he says this so eloquently. In Romans 7, verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And even in the Old Testament, we can go back to Psalm 38, a psalm of David. In Psalm 38, I'm just going to look at verses 4 and then 9 through 10. But in verse 4, it says, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes has gone from me. So we see this theme in the Old Testament. And we see it throughout Romans, this groaning and dealing with sin. Even we as Christians, as we face this, this is the groaning that it's talking about. And, and it's paralleled to the groaning of creation in that creation groans because it's not fulfilling God's intended purpose for it. And, and for us as Christians, with the work and the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we should be groaning and fighting against that, praying for that, that coming redemption and, the, and future glory with Christ. But what else do we know about what the Holy Spirit does for us? And this is, I think, so powerful in this passage. The Holy Spirit is called our helper, right? Our helper. And this is where our inadequacies and our our futility as humans is, is so powerfully helped by the Holy Spirit. Because we know that the Holy Spirit is here to intercede for us. And that's what this passage is talking about. When it says, when we don't even know what we ought to pray or how we should pray, the Holy Spirit is there for us and working in us. So go go back to that, that chapel, right? Go back to that chapel in Kyrgyzstan and imagine you're standing up there, getting ready to speak to these Marines, not knowing what to say or how to say it. And and what happened in that story is that as that young officer was standing up there in front of that chapel at a complete loss for words, having no idea, no plan, no no skill, no human skills from that perspective to know what to say or how to present it, that officer looked out into that chapel and made eye contact with a young Marine lieutenant, and that lieutenant just looked up, made eye contact, and just nodded, just a slight nod of affirmation, and then bowed his head and began to pray silently. That Marine Lieutenant sitting there in the seat just began to pray silently. And that was the answer, right? So that young officer did the same, just started to pray silently and then out loud, and then opened the Scripture, then just read from John chapter 10, talking about Jesus, who is the Good Shepherd, And in that moment, in that place, in that feeling of inadequacy, the Holy Spirit could move and just God's word could be a blessing to those Marines in that place. And it wasn't about that young officer or any of us in that situation. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit and God's word moving and using us and interceding for us in our imperfections. And there's there's so much power in that. What a blessing to us in our prayers when we, there are times in our lives when we just have that feeling of futility and inadequacy, right? Whether it's sorrow or suffering, we've lost someone close to us or we don't know what the answer is. We don't even know how to pray. Sometimes we don't even fully feel like praying, but we know that we should. And the Holy Spirit is there for us, interceding for us when we don't even know how we should pray. And so look at that. Look at Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. In verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So so when when we pray and when we see God like this, it's, it's not about us. It's not just us. We're going before God and God is there and God knows his perfect plan for us. He knows our hearts. And also the Holy Spirit is an active work. And think about that. This is active this isn't passive. What the Holy Spirit is doing in intercession in His Helper. This is the active work of the Holy Spirit, actually groaning, in groaning's too deep for words, interceding for us, actively interceding before God for us. How powerful is that? How encouraging is that? That active work of the Holy Spirit in our prayers and being part of that. You know, and it's it's a funny example, but I think it's uh, Pastor Ray Ortland uses this example. Um, at times, to talk about prayer and, and how we see prayer and miss the mark sometimes. So, the example th- that he likes to use is there's a far side comic. And in this far side comic, there's a man on a deserted island, right? And he needs to be rescued. And he, he's got a stick and he's riding in the sand on this deserted island and he's writing H E L F. And so, there's a helicopter that comes. Then this helicopter that comes in, in, in the caption, in a little word bubble there, the, the, the people in the, in the helicopter, this rescue helicopter, look down and they say, "Oh, I, I guess he doesn't need help." right? And, and he leaves him there, right? Thankfully, God isn't like that with us, right? We don't have to say the right words. We don't even have to know the words. We just have to reach out to God in prayer, recognizing that we need His grace, that we need His love, that we need His redemption and then he's there for us, and he will perfect those prayers, and the Holy Spirit helps us with that. So before we get to the final point, I do just want to, I think it's worth just kind of noting, if if you want to take a note on this, there are three kind of distinct groanings here that are talked about in this passage, right? And they, they all kind of are interesting in that they allude to, to a future hope that's there. But the first groaning you have is the groaning of creation, right? Creation has fallen, and it is, not, it is no longer able to fulfill God's intended purpose for it completely. Then you have the, the groaning of the Christian, the groaning of the Christian and our desire to overcome, like Paul, overcome sin and, and live for God. And then you have the groaning of the Holy Spirit interceding for us, right? Groaning's too deep for words. And I think, I think all of those things are so powerful, especially when we think of it in terms, as they would in Jewish literature, of childbirth. And all of this is leading, all of this suffering is leading to the future hope, to the glory of the second coming of Christ and our resurrections as believers in him. And so let's look at that final point. When we consider this, when we consider this, There are a couple of passages that I want to go to, to just, that just illustrate this so well, because when we talk about this future hope, the word "hope" in the English language is at, inadequate really, to describe what Paul means here. Right? When we think hope, and we th- it's sort of I hope my wish comes true. I hope this happens. I hope everything turns out okay, right? That's what we think of often when we, when we hear the word hope. But here, in the original language in the New Testament that Paul was writing in, this word hope didn't convey any level of uncertainty. It wasn't meant to convey any level of uncertainty. This is the not yet, but it's coming. It's not yet. That's what it's coming. And so that's why you hear this, this eager longing, lifting up. I know this is coming. I'm on my tiptoes waiting for it. Right? That's where that fits into this future hope that's being talked about. This is a reality. So if we look at passages like Philippians, if you look at Philippians chapter 3, in verse 20, the scripture says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now think about that. In Philippians, they're saying our citizenship is in heaven. Even today, as Christians, as believers, our citizenship is already in heaven. Another example of of powerful language like this, I think, that gets to this reality of hope is in 1 John if we look at first John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So again, in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven in 1 John. Beloved, we are God's children now. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that encouraging to us as we think about this hope? And as we think about this hope, we can look earlier in the book of Romans where this, Paul talks about this as well. So the last passage of scripture I want to go to is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So as we look at this passage in Romans, just a couple chapters earlier, it says, beginning in verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And so just as we look at this passage in Romans 8, And we move from a discussion of of futility into the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the, the promise of the coming redemption that we have. And then we consider the reality of the future hope. In this Christmas season, as we think of it, as we think of the celebration of the coming of the Messiah, we should also be turning our attention to and living our lives embracing the future hope of the second coming of Christ as he comes. So church, there is a heaven. There is a reality of future glory. And just as Israel waited for a Messiah, we should be waiting for the reality of the second coming and the future glory. Especially at Christmas. In this Advent season, Praise God that the Messiah came and he is coming again. And this morning I ask you do you have this hope? Do you have a confident anticipation of this future reality? In Christ, you can. God offers that through his grace. And Christian, for those of us who have, by the grace of God, answered his calling, are you embracing that hope? Are we embracing that hope? As adopted children of God, redeemed by him, we are living an eternal existence. Today is one day of an eternity with Christ. And that mindset, that acknowledgement of our eternal place, it should, it should transform the way we live. Every day is a day of living the first fruits of our glorious eternity with Christ. In this lost in this fallen and sinful world, if we as Christians could simply do that, it would revolutionize not only our own lives, but our communities and the people around us. It would, if we truly lived every day embracing that reality and treating it as a reality, the impact that the Spirit could have through us is so incredible and so powerful. And I just pray as we consider the first advent, the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, And we consider that and we consider Christmas and we celebrate that. We don't just focus on the coming of Christ. We focus also on his coming again and what it means to live a life fixed in the future reality of our coming glory and who our Savior is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word For the scripture that you've provided us, for the opportunity that we have to come together in fellowship and worship, for this community of believers that you've brought together for this purpose. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for sending your son for us. And we praise you in humble anticipation of the future glory to come. Amen. Amen.